morning. It's Thursday, November 10th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for listening. If you find this program edifying, do me a favor. Tell your friends. Encourage them to tune in over the air if they're in the St. Louis area, online at kfuo.org, or through their favorite podcasting app. Also, I love hearing from you, and I answer every email I receive. So send me your questions or comments to pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. And every Friday, I feature one of your letters or answer one of your questions at the top of the show. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, today we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Forty years have passed since our last chapter, and Moses is shepherding his father-in-law's sheep when he suddenly sees a burning bush, a bush that, despite being engulfed in flames, isn't being destroyed. He investigates to find that he is standing on holy ground, and through the angel of the Lord, God calls him to an incredibly difficult but important task. Go to Pharaoh and demand he free the Hebrew people from slavery. Well, lots of important stuff to talk about today, and with me to discuss it is the Reverend Andrew Jones. He's pastor of First Lutheran Church in Concord, California, and author of the book, 10 Questions to Ask Every Time You Read the Bible, with Concordia Publishing House. In fact, the book officially drops today, and you can find it at cph.org. Pastor Jones, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm excited to have you on. I'm also excited to uh, get a copy of your book and dig into it. I, it's available today, so I'm going to go and order it today. But before we head into Exodus chapter 3, which is the focus of uh, our joining together, I'd, I know our listeners would love to hear a little bit about yourself and about your new book. Sure. Yeah, so as you said, I'm in Concord, California. Concord is in the East Bay, so it's not too far east of Oakland. I've been here for just over four years. It was my first call out of the seminary to come here. And uh, before that, my wife and I had spent some time uh, overseas before we went to the seminary in St. Louis. Uh, We had spent some time in Germany in the Frankfurt area and also in Ankara, Turkey um, in In Turkey, we worked as English teachers, uh, building relationships with students. And in Germany, uh, I was working at an international English-speaking church known as Trinity Lutheran. Uh, Really unique place, uh, served by LCMS staff for the most part. Uh, But uh, one of these mission congregations that was planted sort of uh, in the days post-World War II for military in that area. And... uh, you know, really a joy to serve them. Typical Sunday over there would be, you know, people from 15 different countries every every week worshiping together. So it was a really great place to do ministry. I worked with youth and education there uh, through the Office of International Mission. And my wife uh, works in communications. And so she was doing some communications work for that entire region of Eurasia while we were there. And before that, uh, I was in campus ministry at Concordia St. Paul, which was my alma mater. And before that, I grew up on a farm in the middle of Minnesota, actually only about 
maybe three hours away from you are, uh, Pastor Boo. So yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, really love living out here in Northern California. Love to, to hike and experience God's good creation out here. It's just beautiful out here. Um, so it's been a joy out here so far. And a little bit about my book. Okay. Uh, 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible is a guide. It is meant to help people uh, learn more about the scriptures, but more importantly, learn more about who their God is and how much he loves them. And I've found one of the, the best ways to sort of improve my, my biblical fluency to, to understand the Bible better is to just keep asking questions, uh, to be curious and to, to dig in deeper and deeper, further and further. And so this book is sort of a guide to help readers of the Bible as they approach the scriptures, offering them some questions that are pretty easy to answer. Uh, you don't need a lot of resources to answer any of these questions. And I really hope it is, is helpful for you if you're familiar with the Bible or not. I, I think it can be useful. At least that's what some of my early readers have told me, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not. It's a helpful, helpful resource. So, Well, that's great. That's I'm, I, I think we're privileged to have with us then as a guest, the, the man who literally wrote the book on reading the Bible. So you, we should be able to <laughs> dig into the text today in some pretty uh, interesting and hopefully elucidating ways. <laughs> And of course, I'm, I'm joking Hopefully. a little bit. I know you're very humble, and I, uh, I have heard good <laughs> things about the book, and I, like I said, I'm looking forward to getting it. Now, when it comes to our text today, which is Exodus chapter 3, it's, it's Moses and the burning bush, right? I mean, everybody <laughs> has heard this story. Uh, if you have spent any time in Sunday school, or if, even if you've walked down the hall where Sunday school takes place, I'm sure you're familiar, at least you think you are, with Moses and the burning bush. So today, I hope as we go through it, we're able to pull out some things that maybe you haven't thought about and apply it in ways that maybe hasn't been so clear or taught in Sunday school. We can only see as we go through it. So uh, before we just dig into the text, uh, Pastor, I'd like to invite you to start our time together in prayer. Yes, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing to us on the pages of your sacred scriptures who you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to Moses in the text that we will study today, revealing that you are a God who has a name, that you are a God who cares about his people, that you are a God who comes down and visits his people and delivers them from their sufferings. No matter what the listeners today are experiencing in their lives, remind them how much you love them and that you deliver them from all their enemies. In the name of Jesus, amen. Yesterday, when we covered Exodus chapter 2, we were introduced to Moses. Uh, Moses fled to Midian because he had uh, murdered uh, one of the brutal taskmasters because he was um, assaulting one of the Hebrew slaves. And then it ended with uh, the description of God hearing the cries of the people. And verse 25 of chapter 2 says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Such a, such a powerfully ominous way of ending the text, but God knows and he's connected to their struggles because they are his chosen people. He also knows what he's going to do about it. So in... Um, verse, or sorry, pardon me, chapter three, 
uh, we have Moses now, and it's been quite a bit of time, hasn't it, Pastor? You know, set the stage for us as we go into this chapter. Yeah, so after Moses runs away in chapter 2, he spends like, I think, 40 years before we get to, to this part where, where God reveals himself in the burning bush. And so he's been, uh, you know, he, he gotten married in this time. He's, he's living with his, his wife's family, his father-in-law Jethro. And, uh, you know, Jethro has seven daughters. And so he's been sort of the, the working man uh, f- for this time, being a shepherd, keeping watch over the sheep. And, yeah, so 40 years have passed. And so it's, it's, it's kind of hard when you're reading the scriptures and it jumps so, so many decades and just, you know, one verse, uh, but some time has passed. So, so Moses has really lived through this, this struggle of being a murderer. He's had to deal with that for a long time. And he sort of, you know, divorced himself from Egypt. That's behind him. That's, that's past life. And so in this text, as, as we hear God calling Moses to, to go back to Egypt, it's been a long time. Uh, and so it, it sort of seems uh, surprising to Moses, and we'll see sort of his reaction to that. Maybe not so much in, in this text, but you'll probably listen to that tomorrow more. Uh, but yeah, 40 years, long time. Uh, Many people ask, time, well, how do, how do we get 40 years? And that's one of those things where when we're reading it chapter by chapter and not reading it as a whole— um, it's it's tough. It's tough to see those sorts of things. So I'll just point you to uh, Exodus chapter seven, verse seven. It says, "Now mm-hmm. Moses was eighty years old, and Aaron eighty three years old when they spoke to Pharaoh." And we know that by the end of this text, that's where Moses is heading. So we can kind of do a little simple arithmetic and find out that he's about forty years old. In fact, it even says it in Acts chapter seven, verse thirty. It says, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And that's what's getting ready to happen. So, yeah, sometimes we have to be elsewhere in the Bible to get the the the, the whole grounding of what's going on, the scene being set. But it, it's helpful for us to understand that Moses is now 80 years old, roughly, when this is taking place. And that's significant, I believe, for what God is about to call him to do. People certainly lived longer back then, but 80 years is still not a young pup for what's about to happen. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's interesting that you draw in that uh, Acts chapter 7, because that's, you know, that's the Stephen being stoned to death. He's about to die, and he sort of runs the history of the entire uh, <laughs> nation of Israel. And so he brings up this text. Uh, he's one of the people that brings it up. We'll, we'll see Jesus bring it up a little later too, uh, but but points to this text as an important piece of Israel's history, and it really is right. Like Moses being called into this service really sets the stage for everything that's going to happen in the Book of Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, and beyond. Uh, all of them sort of harken back to this moment in Exodus 3 when God reveals himself to Moses. So this is a really important chapter for for God's people of Israel. This is especially true when we think about how, you know, what do people remember when they think of these stories from, you know, Sunday school or from hearing them preached or from seeing them taught? And I think what they think of is the burning bush. 
such like we um, we see in Daniel. People remember the lion's den, and people re- remember the uh, the fiery furnace. But do they remember the circumstances around it? You know, these visual things that God uses to get our attention and certainly the attention of his prophets and other people he's dealing with sometimes become the main attraction when the fact that this bush is burning is the absolute least of the important things that are going on in this text. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, and yet the at least in the ESV, the editors have chosen to name this section the burning bush because that's the part people <laughs> remember. Um, yep, when yep. he, when they could have named it, you know, God reveals himself, Moses is called, you know, there's all sorts of things. Well, um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to go ahead and read some of the text. I want to read verses one through 12. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, that's our text through verse 12. A lot in there, but we're getting it all out there in the open. So we have something to uh, discuss, plenty to discuss. Uh, But starting at the very beginning, uh, take us through what's going on, brother. Yeah, so Moses is a shepherd for his father-in-law, who is serving as priest of Midian. And one of the interesting things about this particular text, I think, is that Moses is sort of far away from Midian at this point. Like he's wandered quite a ways from Midian to be at Horeb. Um, Horeb is the same thing as Mount Sinai. So when you see those, those are the same mountain. Uh, so he's he's traveled quite a few miles from where Midian is to get to Horeb. So he's a little bit of a ways from home. Um, and so Horeb being the mountain of God is sort of something that we will, will see this come up again. Uh, when, as, as the text sort of ends with verse 12, God says, you'll worship God on this mountain. Well, when the people are delivered from Egypt, this is where they'll come to. They'll worship God on this mountain. This is where God reveals himself again. This is where the 10 commandments are 
are given to Moses and the people. And so uh, Sinai is where this is located, but Moses has had to go quite a ways to get to Sinai, uh, shepherding the flock quite a ways away. And then we get to this part in in verse 2, and uh, Pastor Boo, maybe you can shed some light on this too, but it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, have you talked recently about the angel of the Lord and how we identify the angel of the Lord recently? Well, you know, we it comes up, right? It comes up time and again in the scriptures, and we have discussed it in regards to Daniel, for those who are listening to Daniel. But, you know, we have new listeners all the time, so I think it's worth discussing because it is. It's something that we encounter, and, you know, there's a little bit of, I don't want to say division around it, but there's certainly uh, – it's certainly important that we understand what's going on here and and how to understand it. Yeah. So, so my take, and you know, if you can correct me if, if I'm way off base here, but my take generally, especially with this text is that when we see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, um, we might do well to not necessarily think of it as an angel, but you know, the word angel, uh, another word for that would be messenger. And so when I see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, I see more of a title. Uh, this is a particular messenger from God. And oftentimes we, we see when this particular, uh, this particular angel of the Lord appears, it's not just another angel. It ends up being God himself who has come down. Uh, we might refer to this as a theophany. And when, when God appears in this way, as he does in the burning bush, um, there are you know, different Lutheran theologians throughout history who have talked about this. And I was, I was reading Martin Chemnitz a little bit on this topic, and he identifies anytime God appears in these sort of physical ways as the logos or the word, which we would maybe identify as the, the pre-incarnate Christ. And so this would would be Jesus before he has come down as an infant in Bethlehem many years later, sort of appearing as God's messenger to God's people. And we see this come up time and time again, as you mentioned, uh, this happens in Daniel. Uh, this happens with other people who are called into, into God's service. For example, with Gideon, um, he sees the angel of the Lord and bows down and worships him. And we continue to see this, this figure come up again and again and again. And so that's sort of my take when I see the angel of the Lord is I am thinking, you know, this is sort of God presenting himself in the form of, uh, I would say, this is sort of Jesus speaking before he has become Jesus, if that makes sense, before he has become a human being appearing in a different form so right any thoughts on that phil no yeah i mean we have theophanies right so theophany from theos which means god and and final which means to appear or be revealed so any theophany is whenever god displays himself in such a way that ordinary human beings can appreciate and understand it so at the very least, I don't know that any reputable scholar would deny that this is a theophany, right? This is God coming to present himself to uh, to Moses. Uh, when these things happen in it, and there seems to be this distinction between an angel of the Lord, a messenger or angel from God, 
and the angel of the Lord, uh, those distinctions seem to be, as you've pointed out, that the angel is generally God appearing in some way, as opposed to the creature, which is an angel or messenger, what we call an angel or messenger. In Hebrew, the word's malach. In Greek, the word is angelos. And so we, or I guess, are closer to Greek than, than uh, Hebrew, so we all call them angels from angelos, uh, probably from the Latin more. But anyway, so the question is then, you know, is a particular person of the Godhead associated with these theophanies, which are the angel of Yahweh? And, and most, most conservative scholars and evangelical scholars and Roman Catholic scholars will say that, yes, this is a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus or the second person of the Godhead. Not everybody agrees with that, but almost everybody agrees that it's definitely just God himself. So it's sort of a moot point, right? Because, because Jesus is God, um, mm -hmm. but this is before Jesus has been born. And so mm -hmm. we don't, we, while, we'll, while we would never say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, because the Son of God has existed in eternity as a part of the triune and eternal God, there was a time before Jesus was, right? Jesus was born in time to Mary. And so I think it's just, it's not that the um, identification is difficult, it's just really hard for us to get our minds around that this is the mm -hmm. second person of the Godhead appearing. Um, and yes, we can say Jesus, but it's just not particularly accurate. It's just tough. It is tough to get your mind around, but it's definitely worth yeah. noting that the angel of the Lord is more than just one of the creatures that we call angels. Yeah, well said. That, that was really uh, helpful distinctions that you put out there. So thank you for, for that. Very good. Um, yeah, you know, and, and as we continue to work through the text, you, you see, you know, he sees this site. There's a bush that's on fire, but it's not like burning up. It's not being consumed. And Moses, you know, like we would do if we saw something like this, we'd be like, oh, I'm going to go look at that, right? He sees this great sight and he wants to go get a little bit closer. And so he steps closer. And as he does so, God speaks. God calls his name. And Moses says, you know, here I am. And then God invites him to take off his sandals. The place he's standing is holy ground. It was interesting as I was reading through this, I was looking for other places that this happens where uh, someone is invited to to take off their, their shoes because where they're standing is holy ground. I only found one other spot. Uh, it's in Joshua 5 uh, before Jericho falls. Uh, the commander of the armies of the Lord appears to Joshua and invites him in a very similar way uh, to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground as well. And so... Yeah, this is a not a unique thing, but it is very close to only a couple of examples of something happening uh, like this, this holy ground uh, being spoken of. Well, being spoken of, I would say, like, particularly in terms of taking off your sandals, right? So there's this yeah, action that you should do. Because the one mm -hmm. thing I wanted to add is, or talk about a little bit, is this idea of holy ground. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't unique to Israel for these incidents to happen. You mentioned Joshua 5. Uh, we see elsewhere uh, where areas are considered holy. Uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 11, we have – that's the Tower of Babel. There's some language in there that talks about, you know, places that are holy. Anytime that God appears either as the angel of the Lord or sends a message or calls someone – 
Um, in Israel, they would set up, you know, a heap of stones or a pillar or an altar, and they would rename the place. It's sort of designating this uh, sacred geography, I suppose, for lack of a better term. And uh, this sacred geography seems to be something that is not just in Israel. It was in all kinds of other Near Eastern beliefs. You know, you think, well, well, you know, the mountain is the abode of the gods, so that's a special place, and only certain people can go there. This continues into the temple where, you know, we have the Holy of Holies. This is the dwelling place of God. And the only thing, what I'm trying to make the connection with is that we have lost, I think, almost every sense of the idea of holy ground or, or sacred geography. You know, here's God coming to Moses. And yes, it's in the spectacular fashion, this burning bush. And of course, we could connect fire to God's presence, plenty of places. But... Then we have the Holy of Holies, which I know, I know the temple curtain is torn in two. Christ has removed that division. But has he removed the division to the point that now there is nothing holy? There are no places that are holy. Everything's sort of vulgar and common. And, I, and see, I don't think so. I think it's – and so we see today in the way we treat our church or our vessels or the areas where God comes to us in the sacrament, you know, a lot of that speaks about what we think about holy things. And it's not to say that they are in and of themselves holy, but it's honoring that God uses those to do holy things. And so while I think it's fascinating that we have this idea of holy ground in in Exodus, I think it's even more interesting to see how we've lost it in today's mm. world. I don't know. What do you think about that? Am I way off base? No, I think that's fair. And I, I wonder, do you think that's something that we've been losing more recently, or is that something that was lost much earlier because when I think about some of the churches that I have visited that are, are different uh, different traditions like I think about a couple of the Orthodox churches that I've been in mm -hmm. they seem to have much more of a designation of uh, sacred space than than other churches might and so you know maybe it's maybe it's just different traditions have, have gone in a different direction with that. I'm not sure. I think that's um, fair. I think that's a fair assessment. At the same time, I think what the world holds up as holy and sacred uh, is so different than, than what Christians do. And, and as Christian churches, regardless of their denomination, begin to you know adapt parts of the culture, then they take mm -hmm. away those things, right? So you know, I'm not saying that everybody should dress up in a suit and tie to go to church but there was a time in this country where people would do that because they would be you know in their mind they're going before god and so they would wear the best whatever their best was and now churches and now churches emphasize wear whatever you want you know wear the board shorts come on in we just want you here and 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 the intent behind that is not bad but at the same time it seems like maybe we are making vulgar the the place where God literally comes to us in his body and blood. And I just mean vulgar in the sense of common for those who are listening. So I, I don't know, and I'm not trying to make a big deal of it. It's just something about, something about uh, I've been going through Genesis with my congregation in our Sunday morning Bible study, and as these sort of holy ground places come up and up again, uh, that's what keeps getting in the back of my head. Uh, so, you know, maybe I should flesh it out one day and write a paper or something, but uh, I don't want to belabor the issue. No, it's it's interesting. Just the the other place that I can think of where 
holy ground is kept in other cultures uh, is, especially in the Islamic faith, like if you go into a mosque, you're invited to take your shoes off. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is definitely this uh, separation of space that is set aside for uh, the sacred, if you will. And so, yeah, I, I wonder... I wonder how much of it is simply cultural and, you know, as the church, how do we communicate uh, the spaces that we have that are sacred, you know, where, where Christ does come to us in this very particular way in his body and blood. This is now a sacred space that you are coming to. Good question. Well, something for us to think about as we head into our break. So folks, don't go anywhere. Pastor Jones and I will continue our discussion of Exodus chapter 3. We'll see you on the other side. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Andrew Jones, pastor of First Lutheran Church in Concord, California. Well, brother, before the break, we were talking about holy spaces, maybe got a little bit off track as Moses is invited to take his sandals off because he's in the presence of God. Uh, and, you know, it gives us something to think about, probably a rabbit hole for me to go into after the uh, after the episode. But uh, let's keep going with the text and maybe pick up where God identifies himself uh, as the God of Moses' father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Moses hears that, he hides his face because he was afraid to look at God. Yeah, so this identity of God is something that comes up again and again and again, right? This is who God is. He's the God of Moses' father, meaning you know, he's, he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the patriarchs of this people. And God reveals himself in this way several different times, sometimes just as God of Abraham, sometimes as God of Jacob, sometimes as, as all three here. And so now this is not just a burning bush that's, that's talking. This is not just a messenger from the Lord. This now we see very clearly is uh, God himself revealing himself to Moses. And Moses hides his face. So his, his shoes are off. His face is hidden because he's afraid to look at God. And then God, you know, reveals to Moses why he's talking to him. He's seen the affliction of the people. He's seen uh, their, their slavery in Egypt and how much they are suffering. And God has come down. God is going to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And he's going to bring them to a new place. He's going to bring them out of that terrible place in Egypt and into a new place, a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And he tells them where it is, uh, the land of the Canaanites and all these other peoples. And 
And to me, I think the this first part, the the best part of it, which will, you'll you'll see tomorrow in chapter four, a little bit more of this. But the best part of this is as Moses is called into this activity, he is called to bring God's people out of Egypt. Moses is immediately just like, uh, I'm not sure about that. Who am I to do this? Who am I to go and and deliver these people? And God's answer is so powerful because it's it's the answer that we all have uh, as, as we are called into any vocation. God reminds us that he will be with us. This is verse 12, but I will be with you. And you know, this is really such a powerful thing that God does for his people. When, when we face challenges, when we face sufferings, when we face things we really, really don't want to do, he reminds us of his presence. He reminds us that he is with us. How do you interpret verse 12? Upon first reading, it, um, it seems as though what God is saying is, I will be with you as you point out which is so important for all of us and but then he says and this shall be a sign for you that i have sent you in the english standard version it indicates that the sign is this when you have brought the people out of egypt you shall serve god on this mountain which is horeb or sinai as you've also pointed out so Mm -hmm. i will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that i have sent you Uh, some people say that's the sign that you will get a sign after it's all done uh, which I think could definitely preach, you know, I mean, we know because we know the story, Moses gets plenty of signs and miracles and and just, you know, there is going to be no doubt in Moses' mind as he goes forward that God is with him because he couldn't have do the things he he will end up doing without God. But in this text alone, it seems as though God's saying, I'm going to give you a sign. It's going to be something you're going to notice way after it's all done. On the other hand, some people say that the sign for you, because it's grammatically unclear, is actually the burning bush. So he's saying, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, this burning bush. And then he says, and when you brought the people out of Egypt, you'll serve God on this mountain. So there's two different ways to look at it. Uh, Both are perfectly fine. None of them challenge our faith in any way, but it's very interesting. But I don't know. I kind of like the first rendering that I said that... You know, I'm not going to give you any signs. The sign is going to be when it's all over, then you'll have this confirmation. I don't know. I don't know. I, what do you think about yeah, that I or have I'm, you thought about it? I'm with you on that. And I think part of the reason that I would go with that more so is that God speaks of other things in this chapter that are going to happen. And like at the very end, he talks about, you know, when, when you all leave, you'll, you'll plunder the Egyptians. And that does happen. And he talks about uh, signs and wonders that he will show. He talks about Pharaoh not wanting to let the people go. Uh, so I think this is just the, the sign that you worship God on this mountain is one of several things that God sort of promises will occur in the future. So that's how I've taken it. Yeah, he's, I, he's not leaving him signless. There's going to be plenty of times that he's yeah. going to know God's with him. But yeah, I think it's I just thought it was kind of interesting that is interesting. Anything yeah. else you want to talk about that before I read the rest of the chapter? And then, of course, we can bring it all back in. I don't think so. Go for it. All right, let's do it. Starting with verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, 
And they asked me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And that's where this particular chapter ends. So uh, we have this text. God is giving him his name. He, he tells him what the mission is. He even tells him that the mission won't work for a while, but eventually it mm-hmm. will. Uh, there's something to be said about that. But let's begin with the top. Moses says, if I go to them, they're going to ask who sent me. And, and we mm-hmm. get sort of this cryptic, this cryptic name of God. Yeah. And so up to this point, like it, it doesn't feel like God has really given such a name before. And the name that God gives is, you know, it's, it's one of those, that's not a very uh, easy name, right? Uh, I am who I am. Uh, just, or, or some, sometimes translations will make it more of a future tense. I will be who I will be. God is in existence. He is being. He is who he is now and in the past and in the future. Um, you know, the book of Revelation talks about this, the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. That's who God is. That's a good enough name for Moses to take back to the people of Israel, that I am has sent Moses to free the Israelites from Egypt. Yeah, it's such an interesting uh, moment of of revealing of the name. Uh, Now, Pastor Boo, how do you take the, as, as God reveals himself as I am sent me to you, how do you take when, when Jesus later, especially in the gospel of John uses these phrases, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life before Abraham was, I am. Uh, are you taking those as, as callbacks mm-hmm. to this moment? Well, I think when he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am, there's no doubt that that's a a direct connection in my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I hesitate to say that every time Jesus uses the word, I am though, it's some, you know, connection right back to it. 
I mean, sometimes just language is that way. You know, I am going to the store doesn't mean I'm trying to equate myself with God. So sure, in the sure. context of Jesus, the I am statements are very important. And I think it's uh, homiletically uh, possible for us to make those connections as gospel handles to remind people of who Jesus is. But without a really deep dive on it, you know, I've always been, I don't want to say dubious, but I've always been kind of like, is that a, a step too far? But with that said, mm. with that said, when he says before Abraham was, I am, I mean, there's, there's, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, they want to, they want to stone him to death. So if, if he didn't mean right. it, that's exactly how they took it at the very least. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's just such a powerful thing for Jesus to say, to call back to this moment. And, you know, that's certainly how the people hear it in John 8. And so they, they're, they take it as he is claiming to be divine. He is claiming to be God. And that's, that's blasphemy to them. So they, they try to put him to death. Yeah. So talk a little that bit. That all harkens back to this moment. Yeah. Talk a little bit, though, about, let's talk about Yahweh and Lord and Adonai. I think it's, I think it's sure. been a little while since I've mentioned it. So when I read the text in my Bible studies at church, I always just say Yahweh instead of the Lord, which is capitalized. But for mm. this, and that's just my personal preference. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it makes sometimes a little bit more clear. But uh, mm -hmm. why do we do that? What, what What's going on here in the Bible for those who may not understand? Yeah, so... As you're reading through particularly the Old Testament, and you, if you ever see the word LORD in all caps, that is using uh, the name that is sort of revealed here. That is using the, the word Yahweh. And part of the reason why it's not just said as Yahweh is because, you know, God's name was a very holy thing. And people... Uh, were very reluctant to speak the name. They were very reluctant to even really write the name out. Uh, a lot of the the Hebrew Bible that I use, for example, you know, it has the the letters, the consonants for Yahweh, but the vowels that are pointed underneath it in Hebrew aren't even the right vowels because they don't want to write out the whole name of Yahweh as as a sign of respect for God. And so, when you see Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. When you see Lord not in all caps, that, that's a different word that isn't revealing God's name uh, necessarily. You know, you could use that to, to talk about a Lord or a, a master, if you will. Um, and so, particularly all caps means Yahweh, God's name that is revealed here in Genesis 3. Anything else you want to add to that? Well, I just want to also note that um, because they're adding the um, vowels for Adonai to the consonants for Yahweh, if you were to read that as if it were a real word, it would be something like Yehovah, um, mm. which is where we get the word Jehovah, which is essentially a, not a real word. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's it, it's not the, the proper name. Another thing that's interesting, though, is for and most people, I think, do understand that God's name is Yahweh. Uh, but then when we look in the text here and he reveals his name, it's Ehye. Eh I'm not very good at pronouncing uh, Hebrew, but Ehye seems to be different than Yahweh. And the, the sources that I consulted say that while Yahweh is certainly testified to in Scripture very clearly, in this text, the I Ams, which is Ehye, um, they don't know. They're very similar, but they don't really know for sure where 
what the connection is. The connection, like how did that become, even in the same text, Yahweh versus what he says here? So I don't know if you have any more insight on that or not. Maybe you don't because, like I said, scholars are divided. Yeah, I really don't have more insight into that. Um, I'll just leave it there. I yeah, really there you don't. Go. Well, it, if you guys at home yeah. do know, write me at <laughs> pastorboo at gmail.com. Okay, well, let's keep going then. So, um, yeah, so God says to Moses, say this to the people, the Yahweh, right? Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Aram, the God of Isaac, and we love that. That's my name forever, and I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. And he tells him to go and gather the elders of Israel and say the same thing. And he's delivering a message that God knew, which is where we ended the, the last chapter, that God has not left them even in the midst of all of their, all of their struggles. Yeah, which is so powerful, right? Like, as we think about our, you know, the, the, the people in the world today and how many people are struggling with something and suffering and crying out to the Lord. And in this text, we, we see that God cares about his people, that he hears their cries, he hears their prayers, he hears their struggles, and he's not going to abandon them, but he's going to come down and do something about it. He's going to come down and deliver them from their enemies. And I think in, in this particular text, it's, it's a promise that takes a while to come to fruition. You know, God even talks about it. It's going to be a little bit of a struggle. Pharaoh's going to need to be persuaded by, by these mighty signs. And, and I think that's one of the tough things that, that a lot of people experience is they're suffering, they pray, and maybe the answer that they're looking for, the relief of their suffering doesn't necessarily come very quickly. And it's good, I think, for us to come back to this text and say, God knows the timing of everything. God knows the difficulty he will have in, in persuading certain people to listen to him, Pharaoh being that in this case. But God will not give up, and God will keep doing what he needs to do to deliver his people. And he does. Everything that God says in this text comes to be uh, in, you know, throughout the entire journey of these people. Everything that God promises happens. He keeps all of his promises. God is going to give Moses some, you know, signs to show Pharaoh. We know about the plagues that are coming up, and that's a fascinating dive, folks. So be sure to keep up with us as we go through the plagues, because those definitely have some deeper meaning than what you may have been taught. But back to here, verse 18, you know, uh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey so that we can sacrifice to Yahweh our God. That's the message that God tells him to take to Pharaoh. So we have this 80-year-old man who we know from elsewhere in scripture um, isn't confident in his ability to, you know, speak or stand up to, to kings. And then in verse 19, he tells him, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Now, I mean, of course, it continues unless compelled. And we know that the, the compulsion is coming. But wow, I mean, God is literally asking him to do something that he knows that at least initially isn't going to work. 
And we, mm-hmm. <laughs> we in our days, we read the scriptures and it tells us live this way, live that way, do this, spread the gospel by proclaiming the word of Jesus, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we get so impatient when it doesn't happen immediately, when it doesn't work right away, probably a cultural thing like we talked about earlier. And yet he's telling him in advance, I'm, I want you to do this and it won't work, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's something that I, I just is fascinating to me, that whole concept. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that it, it's not just Moses who who has this experience, right? If you think about the call of Isaiah mm. uh, in, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is called to go and serve. And the next thing God says after Isaiah says that he'll go is, well, it's not going to be very fun. You're going to you know speak to these people and they're not going to hear and they're going to, you know, not understand and they're not going to listen to you. And Samuel, when he is called into God's service, the, you know, the message that he has is, you know, the, the destruction of the house of Eli and Eli's, you know, Samuel's caretaker. It's not good news that, that God necessarily sends out his uh, prophetic voices with. And as with Moses, sometimes it just takes a long time before the success of what you're doing comes to be. And it is really, really challenging work. Uh, and so, yeah, in, in a world of instant gratification, I think this can remind us uh, to continue to go where God calls us and, and, and obey that call, even when it doesn't seem like it's working very well. Um, God is with you, as he promises to Moses. God is with them, and he will, he will be the one who, who compels Pharaoh to do what must be done and to let the people go. Pharaoh, um, in our day and age, I guess, in some ways would represent what we're all up against, you know, the, the enemies of every man, you know, sin and death and Satan. And God has a plan by which he has redeemed us from those things through Christ, but we don't receive the benefits, right? We know that the end is, is secured. We know that Christ has won. We know that we are redeemed at our death or his return, whichever comes first, we will be with God forever. But until that point, it's hard and we still struggle against mm-hmm. all of those things. And so there is sort of this connection here to the fact that this old man who is a fugitive is being called out of the desert after his 40 years of exile back to to confront uh, the the very thing that he was running from. And in his confrontation now, though, he's not alone. He's accompanied by God himself. He's been promised he'll prevail but, he, but aside from the signs, he doesn't have any evidence of it. For us, our signs are the ways in which God comes to us in his word and his sacrament. And we have to also keep, keep going in the way that he has set it up for us to go. And, and how often are we trying by, by programs and initiatives and, and all sorts of different ways that we're trying to uh, connect with people or attract people to the gospel because we're impatient in doing the things and in the ways that God has called us to do. And so I think there's a, a there's a connection there, if maybe just a little loosely, I think it would probably preach. But still, the point is, in these last days, because we have Christ with us, you know, we can uh, we can face the trials and tribulations of whatever we face. Yeah, for sure. And remembering that, you know, we, t- we talk a lot about Christ suffering for us, which of course he does, right? He, he suffers for us, he dies for us, he forgives our sins in that way. But Christ also suffers with us. 
And we are united with Christ in our baptisms. We are united with Christ in in suffering, in, in death, and ultimately we will be united with him in resurrection. As he is risen from the dead, he will come back and raise us from the dead if we, you know, die before his return. And that that being united with, with Jesus and remembering that we don't suffer alone, but he suffers at our side and that he's with us through the suffering, I think can be, be really comforting as we face particularly the enemy of Satan. Um, you know, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we celebrated Reformation Sunday. I'm guessing many of your congregations sang a mighty fortress and a mighty fortress is all about, you know, Jesus fighting against Satan. It's all about Jesus being present with us in that fight. He is the champion who holds the field victorious. And the the enemy of Satan is always battled by the presence of God, the presence of Jesus uh, in, in our lives now. And we see, uh, we see a glimpse of that promise to Moses in this text that God is going to be with Moses. Whatever occurs, however long it takes, God is going to be with him and present against the enemy of the devil, which comes forth in Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Very well said. I think that's a good place to end it for today with the fact that we have the promise through Christ. So I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Andrew Jones, pastor of First Lutheran Church in Concord, California. He's also the author of the book, 10 Questions to Ask Every Time You Read the Bible. It's on sale now with Concordia Publishing House. Buy this book, find it at cph.org. I know you won't regret it. Thank you, Pastor Jones, for being on the show. I hope you can come back some other time. Thank you much. Thanks for having me. And thanks, dear listeners at home, for tuning into Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tomorrow, we'll continue in Exodus with Moses being given those powerful signs and returning to Egypt. Let's find out together what happens tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word.